Looking for a graduation gift to inform, inspire, and encourage? When you give a subscription to Christianity Today, you're giving redemptive, relevant news and thoughtful balanced dialogue about the church, current issues, and public theology. Visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to get a discounted student subscription for the graduates in your life. Starting at only $2 per month, this gift will engage and grow their faith throughout the year. Click the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to order now. is the Church Law Podcast, where you can get practical solutions for today's leaders. I'm your host, Erika Cole, the church attorney. In today's episode, we will discuss recognizing volunteers as agents of the church, another concept of vicarious liability. In simplest terms, how to make sure volunteers don't get your church sued. (laughs) So I'm sharing important information about the largest group of workers in churches. That's volunteers. While nonprofit organizations in general rely heavily on volunteers to achieve their goals, according to statistics from nonprofit source, the largest number of volunteers come from the faith community, followed by educational, then social service and health organizations. Whether we're talking about the church greeter, children's ministry worker, the driver of the church van or church musician, or a singer like I've been for many years, volunteers are the lifeblood of churches. And most churches have far more volunteers than employees. While there are specific laws that apply to church employees, and I'll be sure to include in the show notes an earlier episode of the Church Law Podcast where I discuss HR matters for churches. The focus of this particular episode is what your church can do to avoid lawsuits because of the actions or omissions, generally not intentionally, of its volunteers. So first, I'll need to cover some ground to just make sure we're on the same page related to the legal terms that I'll be using today. The first term is vicarious liability. What is vicarious liability? Well, in simple terms, it means imputing the negligent actions of one onto another based on the nature of their relationship. Another way we could put it is vicarious liability or imputed liability is a legal rule that holds a church responsible for actions committed by its volunteers. This can make the church an unfortunate defendant in a case where the church volunteer caused harm to someone else. So let me give you a couple of examples. In general, a church is in control of its employees, is presumed, or any company. So if the employee, generally referred to as an agent, injures someone while on the job, vicarious liability rules could hold that company or church accountable. As a practical matter, vicarious liability gives a plaintiff more bandwidth, if you will, to make a claim. And I guess as we say in the legal world, you can also consider those deeper pockets right? Whenever a 
possible plaintiff feels that they have a case. So generally speaking, um, I would get, these are the kinds of situations where, where we've seen issues like vicarious liability come up. So a volunteer in a children's ministry hurts a kid that's in her care. Unfortunately, even more specifically where we see these kinds of issues is in the case of misconduct involving young kids. Another way that we see this is a driver of a church van is driving and rear-ends the car in front of him. Also, maybe a volunteer is at the church and climbing up on a ladder and falls off and is harmed. So in all of these areas, there could be an argument for vicarious liability that makes not necessarily only the individual liable, but also the church. And why is this important? And even how can your church avoid the liability that can cost unwanted attention, undue time, and significant expense? So first I would say, while it involves some time, expense, and effort, these inconveniences are significantly outweighed by the benefits of increasing the safety of your church and the church community. Um, So the number one suggestion I would make here is that your church would have an overall plan as relates to volunteers. And of course, there are practical sides of this plan. You know, every church wants to have good volunteers with great skill sets that show up and, and are able to serve in the way that's needed. But it's also important that the church do some legwork, namely to have a volunteer screening process. And that volunteer screening process certainly should include a volunteer application where you would get the seminal information about the individual. You would want to make sure that when a new person comes to the church, that you give them a little bit of time to be in place, to receive ministry, and also to ensure that that they will have the same values and commitment expected of the church. Um, You'll want to make sure that there is a background check that your church conducts a background check on all volunteers. There are several organizations that work specifically with churches to help with this process. And of course, some positions would require a higher level of scrutiny than others. For example, if it's a board member or a person who's handling church finances, youth leaders, These are all examples of where you'd want to have a more detailed background check. And certainly when it comes to any activities involving children, you want to make sure that you have a child protection policy. This has been an area that I've discussed many times before. I'll also include an episode where we got into the details about what you want to include in a child protection policy. We'll put that in the show notes. But It has become the expectation of courts and the overall legal system that a church would have in place a child protection policy. And you know what I say, um, the only thing worse than not having a policy is having a policy you don't follow. So you'll want to make sure that you have a child protection policy and that that policy 
is well followed, that it's revisited and reviewed um, on a regular basis. You'll also want to just make sure that you have proper protocols in place so that volunteers understand what is expected of them, where the boundaries are. And as an example, if you have a volunteer, uh, you have a some volunteers for that drive the church vans, for example, you'll want to make sure that you have a clear policy about not using cell phones while driving, because the presumption is that volunteers will be acting in ways that are considered appropriate for whatever that activity is. Now, it's also presumed that these are accidents that occur or these are activities where the the individual, the volunteer is acting on behalf of the church. Now, there are some defenses that churches might consider that may be appropriate when there's been an allegation of liability where a volunteer is acting in such a way that not only might that individual be sued, but also the church. Um, Some defenses that might be appropriate, one might stem from the Volunteer Protection Act. The Volunteer Protection Act of 1997 actually was implemented, came from Congress to promote volunteerism and to limit the risk of a volunteer of a nonprofit organization, specifically of a tax-exempt organization. So if your church has applied for and received tax-exempt status, it may be an appropriate defense for an individual who's volunteered to raise the flag of the Volunteer Protection Act. Now, unfortunately, that doesn't help the church because this act is specifically for individuals and is not something that is a defense for the church. Another defense, another possible claim is that of charitable immunity. To protect charitable organizations, some state courts have developed a judge-made rule called the charitable immunity doctrine. And this rule provides charitable organizations with a defense that might protect the organization from civil suits when the organization does not have a certain level of insurance coverage. Um, the whole idea is of charitable immunity is to ensure that the lion's share of funds that a nonprofit has is able to go toward its tax-exempt purposes or its charitable purposes and that it doesn't get assumed with these kinds of unfortunate accidents. So these are some possible defenses that a church may consider. I think it probably goes without saying, but I want to make sure that I say it. Um, One of the most important things that a church can do is review your insurance coverage. You'll want to make sure that you have the proper coverages in place, review with your broker, Um, There are insurance carriers that specifically work with churches, and I think that that can be of value to ensure that you have coverage in these kinds of instances. And I want to highlight that the presumption of vicarious liability, again, is that the volunteer is acting on behalf of, and dare I say, even under the authority and control of the church. So if this individual goes 
AWOL and is acting in ways that are clearly outside the bounds of what is expected. And remember, we'll want to make sure that there is a clear policy that outlines what is expected. If that individual is acting beyond the bounds, then this is really something where we think that there's a strong argument for the church to make that there is no vicarious liability because the individual was acting outside the bounds of what he or she was told are the expectations. Now, I'm going to get a little bit in the weeds here, but I think it's important for you to know this as we sort of come toward the end of this particular episode. I want to just lay out for you what a plaintiff would have to prove in order to make this case for vicarious liability. So there are four elements, if I could use the the true legal term, that um, a plaintiff would have to prove. So first is that the defendant owed a duty of care, and that is a duty to act reasonably. So in some of the examples I've given you, if a child is, you know, parents drop a child off at Children's Church, for example, there is a presumed expectation that the volunteers there would act reasonably as relates to that child, right? So the defendants owed a duty of care. That's number one. Number two is that the defendant breached that duty usually by acting negligently or failing to exercise the care a reasonably prudent individual would have exhibited in the same situation. So again, number one, the duty of care. Number two, a breach of that duty. Number three is that the breach of that duty was the proximate cause of the harm, right? So because of that breach of duty, harm was caused. And then fourth and final is that the plaintiff actually suffered harm, actually suffered harm for which their should be compensation. So let's use these elements and and work through our scenario of the driver of the church van. So number one, the defendant owes a duty of care. We all on the road owe a duty to each other to drive carefully, right? I have the duty to not run into someone around me. Number two, the defendant breached that duty. Right. So in my example, the driver runs into rear ends, the vehicle in front of him. Number three, the breach of that duty was the direct harm or proximate cause of harm. So, yes, the individual's vehicle and perhaps the individual inside that vehicle were harmed because of this rear end accident. And then number four, the plaintiff suffered losses that they should be compensated. Absolutely. So the vehicle should be restored if it can to its prior as best as possible to what it looked like before the injury. And likewise, the individual, maybe he or she would have to go through PT or something to that effect, go to the hospital. God forbid there's any injury, but nevertheless, they would deserve or have the legal right for compensation. So you can see how that would apply here. Now, again, the the key is to Um, Again, if we're talking about this idea of the driver of the church van, this is where if that individual is simply doing all the right things, but as we know, accidents can happen. That's one thing. But let's pretend that that individual is reading a text or texting and driving, which certainly is illegal to do, and that causes harm. That might provide, again, another area of defense for the church, especially if the church has a policy clearly outlining the prohibition of those actions. So in summary, when we consider areas of 
volunteers and how to ensure that we can be of service. Volunteers can best be of service to the church and also for purposes of limiting the church's liability. We'll want to make sure that there is substantial training for volunteers, that there is an application process, that there is proper insurance, and that ultimately there's also proper screening. So thank you so much for being with us on this journey. And we'll look forward to seeing you in the next podcast episode. Thanks for listening to the Church Law Podcast. We invite listeners like you to submit questions and comments. Send your email with the subject line podcast question to contact at take the next call. Com. This podcast is brought to you by Church Law and Tax, part of Christianity Today's podcast network. This podcast is designed to provide accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is provided with the understanding that the host and the publisher are not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, or other professional services. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional person should be sought. Due to the nature of the U.S. legal system, laws and regulations constantly change. Listeners are encouraged to consult with legal counsel to verify the information provided here remains current. Visit churchlawandtax.com for more insights. Thank you.